Be seated. Uh, please open with me now in God's Word uh, to the book of Galatians. We come again to Galatians. It's so good to be with you. Uh, by the way, it was two weeks ago that I was uh, preaching at a conference up in uh, Glens Falls, uh, New York, a sister PCA church there. And then last Lord's Day, uh, I was at a pastor's conference that I attend every year down in Montville, New Jersey. Uh, thank you to those of you that prayed for me during those uh, days that I was away. That conference uh, once again proved to be a, a real source of refreshment for uh, for me. I think it was something like the 18th year that I've gone to that uh, conference in New Jersey, and uh, year after year, the Lord uh, really uh, blesses that time and kind of recharges me uh, for ministry uh, through much of the fellowship and the ministry that I received. And so I'm so grateful to Pastor Collins to. Uh, preaching uh, to you uh, last Lord's Day, both morning and evening. Uh, but today, again, we pick up uh, out of Galatians. Um, we'll be in it today, not for the next two weeks. Jeremy Walker will be preaching to us uh, next week. With so much look forward to having him in the pulpit. And then the week after that, I'll be preaching a stewardship sermon. Uh, but today, uh, we come again to Galatians chapter 3. Our text today is verses 25 through 29, Galatians chapter 3 uh, and verses 25 through 29. Let's now hear uh, God's word. Uh, but now that faith has come, uh, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus... You are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to promise. This ends this reading in God's word. Let's look again to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we are so thankful for your word. It is life-giving. It is true. Through it, you speak to us. We pray now that by your Holy Spirit, you would impress the things that we read and that we will hear preached upon our hearts for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, uh, amen. Uh, in the last few decades in which we've lived, there has been a, an emphasis in our wider society on the topic of self-esteem. Uh, self-esteem, a positive self-image, uh, we are told, is crucial uh, both to having a healthy emotional life and to making positive choices in this world. Now, Christians have at times uh, been critical of this uh, self-esteem uh, movement, and understandably so. Um, we would ask, well, if there is no God in the world, using a kind of secular uh, assumption that the world uh, has, well, why should we feel good about ourselves if I'm merely a kind of cosmic accident? And uh, what is more, it seems that people often ignore uh, the reality and the seriousness of sin. Uh, nonetheless, one thing that I think 
that has helpfully been pointed out by this movement is that the way that we think of ourselves impacts uh, the way that we live, the choices that we make. But what I want to present to you is that it's in the Bible that we have, as it were, an even much more wonderful, much more positive, much more glorious view of ourselves than the self-esteem movement ever gives because it roots the one who is a believer in Jesus Christ in Christ himself. And so it's not so much a self-esteem that we need, but rather it is an identity that is found in Jesus Christ. And it is as we find ourselves and know ourselves to be in Jesus Christ that that then does have all sorts of wonderful effects in our lives. It leads to a greater assurance of our salvation. It leads us to a more uh, faithful pursuit of holiness and godly living. It is that which will produce peace and joy in our lives as we seek to live for the Lord. Now, that's what we have really here at the very end of Galatians chapter 3. At the end of this chapter really points us to what our identity is as believers in Jesus Christ. And you'll notice that these verses that we've just read are absolutely full of Jesus Christ. Christ is mentioned uh, in uh, virtually every one of these uh, verses. Verse 26, in Christ Jesus. The end of verse 27, baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Verse 28, we are all one in Christ Jesus. Verse 29, if you are Christ. The key to truly understanding who we are, if we are Christians, is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want us to have a kind of identity check uh, today. Uh, well, three things that I want us to see out of these verses so we understand what our identity is in Jesus Christ. First of all, in Christ we have a new relationship with God. We are sons of God. Uh, secondly, that in Christ we have a new relationship with one another. We are one in Christ. And then thirdly, in Christ, we have a new relationship to history. We are Abraham's offspring. So those three things about our identity were shown at the end of chapter 3. In Christ, we have a new relationship, first of all, with God. We are sons of God. Secondly, with one another. We are one in Christ. Thirdly, to history that is, we are Abraham's offspring. Well, first of all, I want us to consider that in Christ we have a new relationship with God. We are sons of God. Uh, these verses show us who we now are in Jesus Christ. And there's kind of a contrast to two terms that were used back in verse 23 and in verse 24. Uh, in verse 23, it describes us as kind of prisoners who are held captive under the law. And in verse 24, as those who were minors under the guardianship 
of the law. And this describes what we were before Jesus Christ uh, came. Now, this is not denying that in the Old Testament period that there were true believers. After all, Abraham himself is that supreme example of faith in the Old Testament. But Abraham and other Old Testament believers looked forward to the promised Messiah. And for us, that promised Messiah has already come. Under the Old Covenant, the law, you'll remember, was given through Moses, and that law was given through Moses not as an alternative way of salvation, but rather as a way to show us how far short we fall and that we by our own works can never merit God's favor. And so the purpose of the law was always to point us ahead, to prepare us for the Messiah and to drive us to seek life and salvation in Him. And so that is why the theme of Galatians is, now that Jesus Christ has come, look to Jesus. Find your identity in Him. And that's exactly what it is saying here now in verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you now are all sons of God through faith. That is, that in Jesus Christ, we now have what the law by itself could never achieve because we were sinners. In Jesus Christ, He has done it all so that we are now not only forgiven in Him, but we are given the highest of all privileges, which is to become the adopted children of God. Now it's crucial, friends, that we realize that that blessing of adoption is a blessing that is given not to all people everywhere, but is given to those, it says it clearly here, who have faith in Jesus Christ. God is the creator of all. God rules as the providential ruler over all. But... Those who enjoy knowing God as their Father are those who have embraced by faith the gift of His Son, the Son whom He has sent for our uh, redemption. And that is so clearly the emphasis. It is in Christ Jesus that we are sons of God. How? Through faith. And then verse 27 even goes on uh, to emphasize this idea of being united to Jesus Christ, that it's only in union with Him that we receive these blessings and benefits of, of, uh, of redemption. Verse 27 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Uh, their baptism is mentioned. Baptism is that outward sign and seal of God's covenant which represents our union with Christ. And so baptism is to be administered uh, with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. But it is simply a rite, it is an outward sacrament, which shows forth that inward reality of, of Jesus Christ. And so it is those who, being baptized by faith, embrace Jesus Christ, are those who have themselves put on Christ. And that language of putting on Christ is a, is a beautiful expression of what it means to be united to Him. You can think of it this way. If a, um, 
uh, when a policeman uh, puts on his uniform, it's an indication that he is now occupies that office of a policeman. Or, or perhaps a basketball player puts on his basketball uniform, and so he is now a basketball player. And here it is saying, we who are Christians have, as it were, permanently now, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We are clothed in Him. Uh, he is part of our identity, that all that belongs to Jesus as our Savior now belongs uh, to me. I am a Christian. I am one who is clothed in Jesus Christ. And so being clothed in Jesus Christ, I am now a child of God. And that's the main point here in these opening verses. In Christ Jesus, this Christ Jesus whom I have put on, Christ Jesus to whom this baptism points, in this Christ Jesus, I, though a sinner by nature and by choice, have now been elevated to that highest of all positions, which is that I am now a child of God. What an extraordinary privilege it is. You know, our shorter catechism speaks of it when it asks, uh, what is adoption? It says that adoption is that act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. We are now part of God's family if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. You belong to Him. You are a son of the living uh, God. I don't know how many of you probably when you were a child, probably nearly everyone in this room, at some point looked at some other family and thought, that'd be really cool to be part of that family, right? Maybe it was the other family that had just really cool parents, or perhaps it was another family that seemed to have so much wealth and money, and you thought, wow, what it would be like to, to live in the mansions that they live in and to go on the vacations that they go on. Okay? Or perhaps if you had a really difficult childhood, some of you looked at another family that seemed to be so loving and caring, and you thought, wow, it'd be kind of cool to be a part of that family. Well, dear friends, if we are a believer in Jesus Christ, we have the very best family that there ever is. We are sons not only of the best earthly parents, but we are sons, even more than that, of a loving, heavenly Father. What a great position that is to be in. What, what a privilege it is to be an adopted child of God. What does it mean, then, that we are uh, the adopted children of God? What are the blessings that we experience as the Lord's adopted children? Let me just list some of the things that the, that the Scriptures themselves say about what it is to be a son of the Heavenly Father. It means, on the, uh, and I have six different things I'm going to say here. First of all, that our Heavenly Father knows what we need and provides for us. Matthew 6, 31 and 32. Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and, dear child of God, your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. He will provide for you everything that you need. The second thing is that our Heavenly Father loves us with a tender affection. 
Psalm 103.13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Do you know that your heavenly Father looks upon you in all of your weakness, in all of your struggles, and He looks upon you with a tenderness and an affection, a compassion as His beloved child. Thirdly, our heavenly Father delights when we speak to Him. We're told in the Gospels to ask and to seek and to knock For even if an earthly father, being evil, knows how to give good gifts to his children, how much more does our heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Our Lord is not one who turns His children away. He is delighted when we come to Him and and ask Him for all the things that we need. The fourth thing is, is that our heavenly Father disciplines us when we begin to stray. But when He does discipline us, it is never out of spite or vengeance, but it is always for our good. And just like little children in our families need discipline for their good, so our Father lovingly disciplines us so that we might be increasingly conformed to His image. Hebrews 12, 5 and 6, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one that He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. Fifth, our Heavenly Father forms in us the family character through the Holy Spirit. That is, we can have confidence that our loving Heavenly Father is causing us increasingly to gain victory over certain sins and to bear the family image, even the image of our God and King. And that's something we can't do on our own, but He's working in us. 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And indeed, through the promises, we are becoming partakers, it says, of the divine nature. And then number six, our Heavenly Father delights to give us His inheritance. Just as a child receives the inheritance of his parents, so if we are the sons of God, we receive an inheritance. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And what is that inheritance? Well, it's ultimately the inheritance of being in His presence as fully redeemed creatures in a restored universe. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now you are children of God, but it has not yet appeared what you shall be. But when He appears, you shall be like Him, for you shall see Him as He is. Do you see, dear friends, what this is saying? Is this not glorious? That to be in Jesus Christ, united to Him, means that we are now nothing less than the very sons of the living God. We have all the rights, all the privileges of sonship, We know not just a good earthly father, for even they fail in a lot of ways, but rather we are brought into the very family of the living God Himself. We are the adopted children of God. That is our identity. So friends, what it means is that we ought not to live in this life as if we are orphans and have no heavenly father. 
when we are tempted to become anxious, anxious about what the next day is going to bring or the next week or the next year. Let's remember to take those cares to a heavenly Father who has ordered all of our days and who is looking out for our needs. When we feel the pressures to perform and we realize we don't match up in our talents and our gifts to other people, we're not as beautiful as that other person, we're not as talented, we're not as smart as somebody else, and we're tempted to get depressed and downcast, let us remember that we have a Heavenly Father who has loved us just the way that we are and has accepted us and embraced us. Let us remember when we find certain temptations bearing down hard upon us, that we have a Heavenly Father who gives us everything that we need for life and for godliness. Do you see? Our identity is in Him. We are sons of God. Let us live in that way, remembering day by day continually our identity as the sons of the living God. So in Christ, we have a new relationship with God. We are sons of God. Now, secondly, I want us to see that in Christ, the second thing about our identity is that in Christ, we have a new relationship with one another. We are one in Christ. This is found in verses uh, 28, or this is found in verse 28. Uh, And it's a verse which speaks really of the of the communion of the saints. That is, if you have now God as your Father, it means that you are now united to everyone else who is together united to this Savior. You have a new family, brothers and sisters in Christ. And so it goes on to say, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Here, Paul picks out three different distinctions which so often divide mankind into different groups. Uh, The first of those is race or ethnicity. Neither Jew nor Greek. You know, it's hard for us in our 21st century world to fully grasp just how deep that division was between Jew and Gentile in the first century. It was so... Uh, deep that Ephesians two calls it that uh, that that middle that that dividing wall of hostility that existed between uh, the two. They had nothing to do with one another. Jews viewed Gentiles as uncircumcised and as dogs. Gentiles viewed Jews as uncultured uh, uh, and 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 just strange, and they had nothing to do with one another. But don't these kinds of racial and ethnic divisions just reverberate through human history? How many conflicts, how much hatred there has been through differences of race and ethnicity. But then he points to a second kind of a division, and it's a division of social standing. There is neither slave nor free, he says. And here he's referring in the, in the first century to a large number of those who were slaves, a kind of uh, almost indentured uh, servanthood that existed, the lowest rungs of society, and others, of course, who 
were in charge and who had much of this world's wealth and social standing and education. And again, don't these kinds of class distinctions sort of reverberate through uh, human history? How much it seems we are defined by the level of wealth we have or the level of power or prestige. What social class we find ourselves determines often who it is that we relate to and who we feel comfortable around and even how we speak and the cultural customs that we have. So that's the second division, he says. And then there's a third division that he points to, and it's a division really of gender. There is no male and female. In the ancient world, women were given, uh, really, at best, you could say, even a very minor place uh, in in. In, in life, they were often uh, oppressed and looked down upon. Uh, and how often there have been divides, divides of gender throughout uh, human uh, history. Uh, even in our own day, uh, the distinctions between uh, men and women, what, what confusion there is that, that surrounds this. And uh, there are certainly movements that think, well, the whole world would be a better place if there were no men in it at all. And there are men, on the other hand, who have abused and taken advantage of and continue to do so uh, with women. And uh, there is this, uh, at times, a kind of hostility. And it's interesting, as we look over these three different sorts of classes that have, or three different distinctions that have led to divisions in this world, uh, again, our minds ought to just think, how many times through human history has this, led, uh, has this led to clashes? You could even go to university and study any of these things. Marxism, which says, well, problems are a result of class struggle. Go and study gender studies and uh, all the, dis- the distinctions and power relationship between men and, and women or, or studies of race and ethnicity. Friends, these are significant significant things. Paul wrote these words 2,000 years ago, and is it not the case even today that these are the significant things that often divide us? What is he saying here amidst this world of division? That there is a unity that can be found that transcends all of these things, and where is that unity ultimately to be found? Friends, it is to be found in Jesus Christ. That's the promise here. That in Jesus Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is not male and female. What does he mean by this? Well, he's not saying, uh, he's, he's not saying here that these uh, distinctions are completely obliterated when you come to Jesus Christ. That within the church, we are, there's kind of a raceless, classless, androgynous society or something like that. That's not the case at all. Rather, even within the church, and the Bible itself points to it, at times there are different roles and responsibilities as a result of some of these distinctions. Husbands have certain responsibilities and wives others. There's different roles for men and for women in the church. There's different responsibilities. The Bible lays out for masters and slaves. So we ought not to interpret Uh, these verses as kind of wiping away every human distinction, but it's saying this, and what it's saying is profound, that when we come into the church of Jesus Christ, 
the diversity that we experience should not be a cause of division, but rather, as it were, should be a cause of celebration as we recognize, as it were, God's multi-form grace and the richness of this new humanity that He brings people out of every uh, racial group, every class uh, distinction, both men and women alike, and He brings us together into one body so that the thing that unites us is even much greater and more profound than anything that distinguishes us from one another. That what we have in common now is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we experience a kind of joy in fellowship with Him. And so, what ultimately is the answer to the divisions that we experience in the world? Ultimately, it is in Jesus Christ. It's in this new humanity that is called uh, the, the Church of Christ. And so we ought to view one another within the church as being equals. Here is a place where there is no group of people that is more important or of a higher spiritual status than another. Rather, together we have the Lord Jesus Christ in common. What a beautiful thing that is. Let me just make a couple of applications of this point. Uh, First of all, just to say, that you should not desire that the church would have only your kind of people in them in it and by your kind of people we mean whatever your ethnicity your class your age your gender we could go on your personality your likes your dislikes and friends there is sometimes the temptation to want to build a church around one kind of person. Here is going to be a church for young people or a church for old or a church for this particular group, a church for uh, uh, these kinds of people. And friends, no, the mark of the church is that what unites us is always and only Jesus Christ. And the beauty of the church is That here is a place that when you belong to Jesus Christ, no matter what else is true of you, if you belong to Him, here you are one with your fellow brothers and sisters. And so it is within the church that the very rich sit next to the very poor in the same pew and worship the same God together and give one another a hug afterwards. That here it's within the church that people of different color skin can sit next to one another and near one another and worship the same God together and rejoice in Him. That men and women alike can join together in the worship of the living God. We should never want the church to only be my kind of people because part of the beauty of Christ's redeeming work is that it's going to be a people on that final day of every tribe and tongue and nation and people. And let me just say by way of application, secondly, that then what does this mean within the church? It means that you should honor those who are different from you, that you should value them in Jesus Christ. 
that here is a place where we ought to be not being scared of having relationships with other people, but ought to rejoice and to seek out relationships with other people. That friends, the church of Jesus Christ is to be a place where there is this radical new oneness that the world knows nothing of. But here it is in the church of Christ. But what a beautiful identity that is. When you become a believer in Jesus, not only are you now a son of of the living God with all the privileges that that brings, but now secondly, you have this amazing relationship with other people, a relationship that transcends earthly distinctions and differences, a oneness that is to be found in Jesus Christ. But now thirdly, thirdly, What is it about our identity? In Christ, we have a new relationship to history. We are now Abraham's offspring. Did you get this? Verse 29, and if you, and remember by this you, he is speaking to a Galatian church that consists both of Jews and of Gentiles. And if you, O Galatian, whoever you are, dear believer in Jesus Christ, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You know, if I were to... um, Well, let me just ask this... What this does, what this verse does, is, it, is, is that it, as it were, places us in history. You ever ask that question, uh, you know, why am I living now and not at some other time? And what difference does my life possibly make in the grand scheme of things? You know, if you were to, to uh, take out a giant white canvas that was 10 miles long and 10 miles wide, And if the length of that canvas represented, as it were, all of human history from its very beginning down to its very end, and its width represented all of the different places in this vast universe that you possibly could could live, your life is only going to be some little speck, some little dot on that 10-mile by 10-mile canvas. That's all that you are. At some point in human history, you live and die for maybe your 70 or 80 years or maybe much shorter than that. In some location in this huge planet that we're in, you live in this little location and there are people who live in lots of other locations. You are a speck. And that's it. Now, in a world without God, That's a pretty hopeless existence. Who am I? What do I matter? What history do I have? And you know, in a generation or two, you're going to be completely forgotten. Your grandkids will probably know who you are. Your great-grandkids may know who you are. Something about you, possibly. Your great-great-grandkids, probably not at all. That's all you are is a speck. What does the Bible say that we really are? It says that this grand history is actually God's history. 
And in God's history, He, in His sovereign pleasure, once came and chose this man, Abraham, to be His child and made promises. Promises to Abraham that He was going to be Abraham's God And he was going to be the God of Abraham's descendants after him. And he was going to give to Abraham and to his descendants an inheritance. And then Abraham had descendants, the chief of which was Jesus Christ, as we saw earlier in Galatians 3. And the promise is is that 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 these promises were given to Abraham and to his seed, that is Jesus, And in Jesus, his seed are given to all who are united to Jesus Christ by faith. So that if you belong to Jesus Christ, you have a place in this grand unfolding drama of God's sovereign purpose for this universe. You, you little person out of the six billion people that are in this world, you are one of that seed to whom these promises are given. Do you got that? You are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You are God's heir. You are in that line of God's working. You have a history. Abraham is your father. Okay? You are part of God's people that he is gathering through this world. And someday, you are going to enter into the inheritance that is given to Abraham and to all of his seed, which is everlasting life in the presence of God. You are part of God's people for whom it is God's great purpose and pleasure to redeem under the glory of His name. And this work of redemption is God's great work in this world that will redound to His praise age upon endless age. And friends, that gives us a place in history. No longer are we just some speck on a vast canvas. But we are the Lord's special prized treasure, a possession. We belong to Him. We are part of His people. And we're going to be with Him and with Abraham and with everyone else that He has redeemed for age upon age. We have a place, friends, in history. What an identity this is. You see how it's better even than the world's promises of self-esteem. They say, feel good about yourself. Take pride in your accomplishments and your abilities. We want to say, well, what are those? We're going to die in a few years anyway. What does that accomplish? And here, no, here we have a promise of a much better identity than that. It is an identity that is rooted in Jesus Christ. Sons of God, one with his people in this new community and a place in God's history of redeeming His people. So can I just close our sermon today as we come to a close today? I want to close today just with a gospel invitation, friends, because a passage like this, a passage like this reminds us what a stark difference there is between those who do not know Jesus and those who do. Today, these promises of an identity, of a real identity, a real Heavenly Father, a real community that transcends these earthly differences, a real place in history, it has made it abundantly clear that these 
our promises. This is an identity which belongs only to those who are trusting in Jesus Christ. So can I say to you, that is the main thing. It's not just to come to church. It's not just to be here. It's not just to hear these things, but rather might you be one who hears this word and puts your faith in Jesus. Trust in Christ so that this identity also would be yours. Would you not come to the Savior? Would you not believe in him? What the world has to offer is so much less. Can't you see that? It leaves people hopeless and in despair. Come and place your faith in Jesus Christ that you might have this identity as well. Let's pray together. Lord, our God, we thank you for the identity that belongs to those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that we would hear these words and trust in Christ. We pray for those who are trusting in Jesus, Lord, that they would remember what is theirs, that they would be encouraged by this, that they would live not as orphans in this world, as those without a community, as those without a place in history, Lord, but instead that they would continually remember who they are in Jesus Christ and live out of that reality day by day. Lord, grant that we do this. Help us to see the implications, the applications of these things for our day-to-day.